Good evening, everybody. You're listening to Outside of a Dream, a podcast about the best in new horror cinema, video, and short fiction. I'm Daniel Link. And I'm Cameron Suey. And tonight, we would like to offer you an invitation to a discussion about the movie called The Invitation. <laughs> it was released in 2015, and it was directed by Karen Kusama, written by Phil Hay and Matt Manfredi. And I would say this one lies right on the borderline of thriller and horror. Yeah, I, I feel like at, at this point, like determining what genre that is, is sort of counting angels on the head of a pin. Um, I'm comfortable calling this a horror movie. And if thriller fans want to own it as well, I think everyone can have it. Yeah, you know, I think we're up for like kind of a brief discussion later on this episode about like trying to define the difference through that too, because there's a bit of overlap and misunderstanding that peeves me definitely, but we can get into that later. Yeah, certainly I'd be curious because I don't think that I have strong uh, borders between those things. So, yes, The Invitation came out a few years ago and was directed by Karen Kusama, who has a very varied filmography. Uh, her initial claim to stardom was directing Girl Fight, which also helped launch Michelle Rodriguez's career. And she also did the adaptation of Eon Flux. She directed Jennifer's Body. And she did a short for the female horror anthology XX, uh, my favorite short in it, uh, Her Only Living Son. Of all of the horror and horror-adjacent work she's done, this is the most grounded. The other ones have to do with actual, literal demons, so I guess that's not so much. Uh, <laughs> yeah, but I, I think there's still a commonality in that uh, the things that she's interested in are um, very realistic, like especially in this film, but also in, in Jennifer's Body and in the, um, the XX. You know, it's, it's still about social conventions and about you know, sort of social structures we all understand and recognize. Yeah, so that's one of the two things that really resonates with me about this movie. This movie weaponizes social anxiety in a way that it's designed <laughs> to make the audience, in particular anyone in the audience who has social anxiety, feel the most uncomfortable and vulnerable in a way that I think does like works out in spades in making this movie effective. Yeah, by never really coming down on what's going on one way or the other, you sort of go on this roller coaster with the protagonist where you're suddenly like, well, absolutely right. that Nothing is right here. And then as everyone else starts to react to his anxiety, you know, with wanting him to calm down, you start to doubt your own senses. And I think it's, I think you sort of go on that awful ride with the protagonist in a really uh, sort of effective synchronized way. You've previously said that horror is effectively an exercise in empathy. And with this movie, like, you are right in the main character's shoes. You are feeling what he feels. You're having these same doubts and suspicions, and it pays off tremendously. The other way in which this movie tremendously resonates with me is that it is about cults, which is a favorite topic of mine. Oh, yes. I'm one of those people who has like way, way too much knowledge about People's Temple in Jonestown. So this like started to tick off all of the right boxes for me from the beginning, or at least once those elements of the plot become clear, because- they take their a good amount of sweet time in getting there. Yeah, this is a movie that if, if you're going to show it to other people, uh, it, you might benefit from telling them almost nothing because the movie does withhold information in a very playful manner. Yeah, and I think I went in blind. Yeah, I, I just knew it was about like a dinner party. And so we start off with that. So the main character is Will. Will is played by American actor Logan Marshall Green, 
who I frequently refer to as skinny American Tom Hardy, because they just have such very similar facial resemblance. Yeah, until you pointed it out to me, I never noticed it, and now I, I cannot unsee it. And he's been, uh, this isn't his first outing with horror. He was in Devil, which was like the haunted elevator horror movie written by M. Night Shyamalan. Yeah. Yeah, and he was one of the main characters in Prometheus as well, as well as one version of the Shocker in Spider-Man Homecoming, though that, is, of course, is not horror. But here in uh, The Imitation, he's tremendous. This entire movie rests on his performance and getting inside his character's head. Yeah, and a very subtle and restrained performance by design because he's trying to deliberately hold things back from the people around him. And he's trying to put on a brave face and a mask the entire time. And so at the outset, he and his girlfriend Kira are traveling to a dinner party in the Hollywood Hills, uh, the party being hosted by Eden, who is Will's ex-wife. So we learned fairly quickly within the first, let's say, five to ten minutes, Will and Eden separated after the accidental, very tragic death of their young son, Ty. And this is taking place a few years after Ty's death. And this is presumably the first time they're all getting together, not just Will and Eden, but their friends as well for this dinner party. Not when I would say reconciliation, because I don't think there's any implication of either party having wronged each other. It's just like, hey, we're going to kind of reunite and see if everybody's on the same keel. So the two of them, Will and Kira, are heading up the hills. And in the first note of something just being wrong in this movie, they strike and mortally wound a coyote with their car. Yeah. uh, Shades of Get Out. It's never good to start a movie with an interracial couple accidentally hitting an animal and having to mercy kill it. Uh, Yeah. I I thought that last night. I was like, oh, wow. Like The races are switched here, but this is almost the exact same setup for Get Out. And furthermore, both movies deal with like that kind of social anxiety about being afraid right. to speak out right. social situations where you are kind of an outsider. And the car crash in both movies puts you on this, un, you know, nothing has happened. The, you know, the status quo has been maintained, but you, you are in this uneasy footing at this point because this sort of unspeakable thing happened and we're all going to move it past it like it didn't happen. Yeah. So Will, he gets out and he mercy kills, euthanizes, whichever your term is, the mortally wounded coyote having to have done that to a severely injured rat before that scene hit all the right notes of uncomfortable for me. And like, okay, you're starting to get me into this headspace movie. Okay. I feel you. So they arrive at the party up in the Hills in due time. And so he reunites with Eden, his ex uh, meets her new husband, David, and reunited with a bunch of their friends as well. So among their friends are Ben, who is Will's uh, former business partner, coworker, There's Claire, this fairly level-headed woman who's on really good terms with Will. Gina, this kind of former party girl. Tommy and Miguel, this uh, really outgoing, funny gay couple. And they're still waiting on a dude named Choi, who's presumably presumably Gina's boyfriend who hasn't shown up yet. And they decide to get going in spite of uh, Choi's absence. Uh, We find at this time that Eden and David... Uh, the new husband, have been away for a while in Mexico. I'm not sure if they say they met there. I don't think so. But they definitely kind of found a purpose when they were south of the border. And they've came. They've come back to Los Angeles being very new agey. You know, kind of Los Angeles new agey. Like, you're not an LA-er, but you're kind of familiar with that vibe. Am I correct? 
Yes, it's uh, the sort of Hollywood Hills, um, sort of upper upper class, rich spirituality vibe. <laughs> yeah, uh, and that's something that, well, in this little scene in the kitchen, Ben kind of mockingly points out. And in the second note of something being really off, Eden just slaps him. It's very sudden, very harsh. And I completely forgotten about that in my second viewing while rewatching it last night in preparation. And I actually had to rewind over that part because it was just so sudden. I forgotten the context for it. Yeah. 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 And it's, there's all these little moments where it sort of, it goes outside the bounds of what's appropriate very, very briefly, but very, very sharply. And then pivots right back into everything is normal. Oh yeah. Like in like less than say five minutes later, Eden is like ready and willing to make reconciliations with Ben while he's still just kind of reeling from the whole thing. So at this point, we meet two other people who Will is not familiar with. The first is Sadie, who's this kind of loopy, eccentric, and vaguely off-putting young woman who we first see standing partially nude in the shadows where Will catches sight of her. And the second to arrive is an older, very well-composed man named Pruitt. Pruitt is played by (laughs) John Carroll Lynch, who started off in lighter roles, definitely. Like he was Drew's cross-dressing brother on the Drew Carey show. He was Marge Gunderson's kindly, quiet husband in Fargo. Norm the stamp painter. Yeah, Norm the stamp painter. Uh, He has a very heroic sacrifice in Volcano. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) And uh, there's a change that started in his career around 2005 when he played uh, when he was in Zodiac, he played Arthur Lee Allen, one of the main Zodiac suspects, where he has a very brief but disconcerting role as this primary suspect in the case. And ever since, people have just been reaching out and getting him for their various horror or thriller projects. Because yeah, he's so he's so magnetic in that role that it's it's almost it's almost a shame because it's hard for me to think of him in any of those other great roles that he's been in. And now he's been on multiple seasons of American Horror Story. Uh, he was in the second season of Channel Zero. And like at first sight, he is not one of those actors you would think be very imposing and intimidating because he's like a big, middle-aged, balding, heavy-set dude. He's doughy. Yeah, he's doughy. He looks more ease at a backyard patio barbecue. But they use him to great effect in this movie, which we'll find out in due time. He has a he has a, a larger presence. I mean, he is a very tall man, but it's there is something sort of initially welcoming or warmth about his his presence that he can chill very quickly. And it's at this time where Will and the others find out that while they were down in Mexico, Eden and David joined this religious spiritualist group called the Invitation. The others quickly pointed out as a cult, though. The group is split on whether or not that is a good or a bad thing. Some of them find it amusing. Some of them are intrigued. Will and his friend Claire are definitely put off by this whole New Age cult thing, understandably. And that's when we get to the video. Yeah, I mean, before we get to the video, when it's still just sort of this nebulous idea of a, of a religion, you know, again, they play really well off this idea of giving you just enough information that you, the viewer, feel that it's wrong but then sort of push back on like, well, hey, who are you to judge what works for people? And, you know, sort of the enculturation of not wanting to question people on those things and to be polite and empathetic, that tension between that and what you as the viewer and the main character know is 
really well played here. And then the video pushes it quite sharply. Uh, like this is the exact kind of group where there would be that kind of tolerance of that outside belief because it's very well off, liberal minded, you know, younger 30 something people. But yeah, that's when David brings out a laptop and it's an instructional video, like an instructional, I guess more promotional video for the invitation. The invitation is led by this man named Dr. Joseph, who has very limited but still very intimidating screen time. He's played by Toby Huss, who I was very surprised to find out played Artie, the strongest man in the world on the adventures of Pete and Pete, that old uh, Nickelodeon <laughs> kids show. Vastly different role here where he is, I wouldn't say he's full Jim Jones in his demeanor, but there's something kind of quietly unsettling about this kind of older, bald doctor figure. And in one section of the video, we see him kind of guiding this cancer-affected woman through the stages of death. Like, we actually see her death on screen, uh, something that greatly alarms most of the people in the room watching this video, to the point where, like, hey, did we, did we just watch someone die, like, right here at this dinner party? And I think that's the <laughs> first time that everybody else starts to pipe up and say, Okay, we are starting to take this to a weird place. But then instantly they have a, a, a very well-reasoned sort of discussion about, you know, death isn't something that should be culturally so taboo. And they're right about all those points, but they still just showed people a video of someone dying. The push and the pull is still, the, the, the amount of time they're able to keep it up, despite having shown a video of somebody dying <laughs> in a dinner party, is impressive. And so David almost immediately tries to diffuse this tension by starting to play this little party game that's kind of a knockoff of Never Have I Ever. But in this case, he calls it I Want. I guess it's kind of truth or dare, but it's just the dare part and no one's really daring. It's just people saying, I want to do this thing and then just doing it. It's sheer indulgence. So... Sadie just flat says, like, I love all of you here. Never mind the fact that she's met most of these people for the first time tonight. And that just kind of sets the tone for people like oversharing and getting way too overly familiar. Like Eden asks for Ben to kiss her and they kiss passionately right in front of everybody. Gina asks for David's old stash of cocaine, which he very readily obliges. Tommy asks for a blowjob. And it's all kind of like fun and a little bit like me, who is a very socially anxious person, I know that I would just have sweat pouring down my face in this situation if everybody was to yeah. open each other. And there, and there is a character in that who I, I believe bails out in the middle of this because it's so uncomfortable. Um, and I think, like you, someone who's familiar with cults, you probably recognize right away that those sort of lowering of inhibitions, uh, games, and exercises are... Uh, sort of a recognizable part of cult recruits. No, absolutely. Like the idea behind cult recruitment is that they become very familiar with you very quickly because it's all about forming very strong relationships. And so rather than with most friendships you have in your life where that stuff starts gradually, they just come on very strong with you and they impress like how much, how important you are to them, how much you mean to them like as a way of solidifying these very strong commitments between one another, like up front. Yeah, and it's but it's still played out in the context of, hey, this is just a fun party game. No big deal. Exactly. And then Pruitt pipes up. Pruitt relates a story about his uh, late wife, Margaret, 
and about how he used to be a really bad drinker and how one night they got into a fight while he was quite drunk and he shoved her and she struck her head off a piece of furniture and died accidentally by his hand. And then he's talking about like how he feels so free in like kind of accepting this truth about himself and like realizing that, Oh, all this life is just impermanent. And like, I feel like he doesn't flat say that he's absolved by all this, but he is far, far too casual for a man admitting that he killed his wife by accident, even to a bunch of strangers. It is not an admission of guilt. It is some other sort of admission. It's, it's uncomfortable. <laughs> and like, that is the point in the movie where you just feel the gear shift very suddenly. Everyone in the room is like, oh, like even if they weren't put off by the whole video of someone dying before, this is what does it for a lot of them. And I believe it's at this point when Claire, who throughout all of this has proved to be the most level-headed person there besides from Will, decides that she's had enough, she wants to leave. It's around this point we realize that all of the doors in the house are locked and all of the windows are barred as well. So after like begging, hey, please, I just want to go home for the night. I am not ready for this. You know, David lets her go outside and Pruitt follows. says, oh, I'm sorry. I parked my car in front of yours. So I'll need to drive out first before you can drive out. A totally normal thing to say. A completely normal dinner party occurrence that might happen. Someone has to move their car. And he was the last of the party, too. It all makes perfect sense. And then Will just kind of catches a glimpse out the window of Pruitt walking up to Claire's car after uh, she's pulled out. And we don't see what happens next because that's when David pops up right next to Will. He's like, hey, buddy, how's it going? And that we never determine what happened to Claire for the rest of the movie. No, which is fantastic because it's basically this lingering, uh, you know, untied string that dangles throughout the entire thing. It's it's such a good move. I, now, I know that they shot a resolution to that sequence. Oh, really? That, that, yes, a very quick single shot that would have tipped the scales fully one way or the other about what was going on. Oh, okay. Um, and they chose not to show it because it's just having it happen around the corner and having no resolution to it just makes it be this open wound for the rest of the movie. Yeah, that's something that's constantly eating at Will up until a moment later at the climax. Uh, That is a very smart editing choice. And I do have to praise the editing in this all throughout because I haven't mentioned any of these yet, but there are these very, these snippets, these very brief flashbacks to when Will and Eden were younger and Ty was still alive. Just these little memories of him being a father uh, and a husband. And the editor and the sound mixtures will do really interesting things where they'll just crank up the sound loud enough to make you feel as anxious as uh, Will is in those moments. But now that Claire's gone and it doesn't look like Troy's going to show, decide, hey, maybe it's time we finally sit down for dinner. And, you know, it's very nice dinner. Everyone's chatting around the table. Very nice house, by the way. But Will still feels very nervous. So he decides to take a break. Like, I believe he first goes to visit Ty's old room and just kind of reliving some of those memories. I think he ends up in David's office at some point. Yeah. Is this, is this where he sees the lighting of the red lantern? Yes. He sees Will walk out into the back patio with this old style gas lantern with a red filter on it. He lights it, 
and he sets it up in the backyard. And that point is not explained, at least not immediately. Nope, it's perfectly normal and fine, though. Yeah, <laughs> it's all above board. But Will, suspicious, kind of digs through the office and he finds David's laptop. And remarkably, this laptop is not locked or anything, but hey, it's private. I guess he was no, expecting nobody to go into his office. So I can accept that little break in reality where he opens up the laptop and immediately finds this video of Dr. Joseph urging his followers in the invitation to take the final step with their friends, with their families, and to move over to take the necessary action. I don't believe in that video. They say what that action is, but that gets Will even more worried. Will gets even more worried could be an apt alternate title for this movie. Uh, Yeah, just a slow acceleration of Will being worried. He goes out to the back patio at some point, hanging out by the pool, where Sadie wanders out and very bluntly propositions him. He turns her down, but he pulls out his cell phone. And since they're up in the hills, they haven't been able to get good cell reception all night. But he finally receives a voicemail from Choi, which was logged hours ago, like right before he and Kira showed up at the party. When the voicemail, Choi says, oh, hey, I'm right outside uh, Will and David's place. I'm right outside Eden and David's place. Can't wait for you guys to show. I'm, I'm here early for once. Yeah. And so... Will freaks out. He goes back inside and starts accusing Eden and David of having done something with Choi. It's this sort of breaking moment because he's sort of, he's danced around saying something directly, but now he feels like he has evidence, incontrovertible evidence of wrongdoing. We can see the others are also put off here, not merely by uh, Will's acting out here, but also the idea like, hey, where is Choi? Uh, but that's when Choi shows up. Just punctures the whole thing. Yeah. Just at the moment, I was like, okay, they've pushed their hand all the way. Here we go. They go right back to, it's a dinner party. Everything's fine. Why are you freaking out? And they make you feel like the asshole. Like, we're going to find, again, spoiler territory in a few more minutes. They never raise their hand. They never show their hand about how deliberate his delayed arrival was, but it almost feels like gaslighting in a way. And oh my God, they actually light a gas lamp. I can't believe how fucking literal that is. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I didn't catch that before, but yeah, there it is. Oh, Karen Kusama, you were brilliant. But yeah, Choi wanders in and Carl Yoon, who plays Choi, he has very short screen time, but in his short screen time, he just nails this dude who's like, oh, hey, why is everyone so upset? I just arrived. We can get this party started. He's just. Yeah, he has absorbed none of the ambient radiation of anxiety and fear that everyone else has been percolating in all night. Yeah. But Will, kind of confronted by the sudden appearance and basically denial of his accusations, just has this full emotional breakdown that I think everyone is able to forgive because they frame it as, oh, no, he still has yet to process the grief of his son, the grief of losing losing his son, where he accuses Eden as well of getting over their son's death way too quickly. And like, with like an eerie calm about her, but said, okay, let's just settle this. Let's just have as nice, a best rest of the night as we can. So they sit down and David brings out some nice wine, pours it for everybody for a toast. Of course, there's still that little worm in Will's head, there's still that suspicion. 
So right before everybody could take a drink, he just starts smashing glasses out of everybody's hands. He doesn't get to Gina. She takes a swig. He starts railing and screaming about how they shouldn't drink the wine. It's dangerous. Sadie, at this point, attacks him, accusing of ruining everything. They get into a struggle, and then kind of paralleling Pruitt's story, Will shoves Sadie off of him. Uh, She falls and cracks her head on the sideboard, leaving her incapacitated on the floor. They try to revive her. Everyone's screaming. It's panic. And we hear, oh, she's not breathing. But they're not talking about Sadie. They're talking about Gina, who drank the wine and is now passed down the table, completely non-responsive, foam pouring from her mouth. Yeah. Yeah. Clearly poisoned now. Yeah. Uh, Miguel tries desperately to perform CPR on her, but the real, but Kira realizes they're not getting a pulse. It's at that point that David walks up to Miguel and shoots him. And that's the needle drop yeah. right there. That is the moment where everything becomes clear. Everything falls into place. You, the audiences, and Will's fears are confirmed, and everything just goes to hell. There's so little um, reduction of tension throughout the movie. You know, a, a lot of other horror movies have those little sort of blow-off steam moments of your jump scares and your false starts. This movie just deliberately drags the heaviest rock up as high as it can <laughs> for as long as it can. And then this is the point where it just says, fuck it, and drops it entirely. And it just is so... The, the, the switch is so unbelievable how fast it is. But there is a little bit of a fake out here. Because right after David shoots Miguel, there's everyone screaming. It's a panic. And we see, like, in quietly in slow motion, like, Pruitt, like, asking for the gun. Come on, David, give me the gun. David gives him the gun. Pruitt takes it and calmly shoots and kills Choi. Yep. And that's when we realize, oh, we know who's running this show. Obviously, Pruitt has been sent as... I guess kind of Dr. Joseph's lackey in a way, like someone he can trust to make sure that everything can be overseen as to carry it out as needed. Tommy attacks somebody. David slashes him seriously with a knife. Everyone just, the remaining uh, people who are still alive and not part of this cult, so Will, Kira, and Ben run downstairs. Uh, Ben gets separated and he's stabbed to death in the backyard by David. It's just, it's such a rapid, sort of unbelievably violent. I mean, it's, it's the whole last 15, 20 minutes of the movie, and it's just nonstop. Oh, so you know what really unnerved me about like Ben running out into the lawn and getting stabbed? This, uh, where this takes place, it's not too far, at least to my knowledge, where the Sharon Tate murders happened. With- oh, yeah. I, I don't, my, my LA geography is lacking. But yeah, I think, um, yeah, I, I think there's definitely some deliberate echoing of some of the images and ideas from that killing here taking place, you know, involving cults in the Hollywood Hills, etc. But Sadie, who's revived herself and is now in a raging frenzy, attacks Will and Kira. Uh, they're able to fight her off and she succumbs, presumably from her head injury, some minutes later. That's when Pruitt goes after them. And Pruitt gets very close to killing Will, like having him in a headlock. Kira comes up behind him and just bashes his head in with a nice artful sculpture or something like that. And he goes down like a sack of bricks. Yeah, and still, I mean, for all his doughy backyard barbecue dad look, he is still a powerful and frightening uh, presence when he is trying to kill people. It's kind of understandable that they got him to play John Wayne Gacy in one of those seasons of American Horror Story. 
think very stealthily, Will and Kira make their way upstairs where Eden and David still are. Eden, though, has the drop on them, shoots Will in the shoulder before starting to process her remorse for what's going on. Like she, of the four cult members present, she's the only one who hasn't really thought this through. And it's now sinking in with her that, oh God, this is, I become part of something like far beyond my morals. And she turns the gun on herself and a way that I can only imagine is symbolic. She shoots herself in the stomach rather than the chest or the head. Yeah. Some late breaking introspection going on. That's when David comes out for the attack. They don't have any bullets left, so they can't shoot him. And he gets really close to killing Will before Tommy, who's still alive, bursts out of the shadows and stabs David to death with his knife. And, uh, you know, that's about if the remaining cult members, Will and Eden, share one last moment. They take her out to the back patio where she dies on the lawn. You know, Tommy steps back inside because he needs to see to his boyfriend, Miguel. He needs to get an ambulance. So it's just Will and Kira on the back patio, looking out over the hills, looking past the red lantern that David has set up, and seeing in the distance dozens, if not at least a hundred, of red lanterns across the Hollywood hills. Yeah, and it's it's marked with the occasional sort of burst of fire or the sound of gunshots. And then you see now that there are multiple helicopters going on over... I think that's one of this movie's smartest moments is it keeps itself so intimate and restrained for the entirety of it. And literally with just one shot expands it to be, you know, something so much larger and more horrific. Um, And it's just so elegant. And like it kind of answers a unspoken question earlier of where are the cops in all this as soon as the guns start firing the cops in the ambulances, they're probably everywhere else, literally in LA. And they also mentioned earlier in the film that uh, the invitation cult was popular in New York. So who knows what's going on there as well? But it was clearly timed to all happen on that one night. Yeah. To say it ends on a bittersweet moment is a bit of a misnomer. Yes, Will and Kira and Tommy do survive, but you can tell they have survived something that is far more massive than just this house party. That has like, at the time that the credits roll, like untold, unmeasured consequences. To a very gorgeous song by, I think, Laura Marling. A really creepy banjo guitar folk song. Mm, Yeah. Strikes all those right chords of sorrowful uh, murder ballads from the Appalachians. There's a really uh, wonderful line somewhere in the middle of the climax where uh, Will turns to his uh, Takira and says, remember, they're just people. And it really like that, that upsets me deeply because I don't know what he means. Like there's, there's more than one reading to that. Um, You know, is he, is he lamenting the fact that he's going to have to hurt people or is he trying to say like, remember that they are, they are mortal like us. Like it's just such a, it's such a horrible position that he's been put into to have this thought that he has to explain out loud. It's really just this movie is such a, a an exercise in subtle and uh, subtlety and economy, and I think I think you know a lot of horror movies overreaches, and I think it's really easy to be like, well, sure, throw all the blood in, and you know if, if that twelve foot monster is scarier, then a ten fifty feet monster is more frightening. <laughs> but you know this this movie just holds it so close and so economical the entire time, and 
it really earns that sudden unfurling at the end to being something so much larger. And it just does it so simply. Yeah, though, to be fair, they do have a 50-foot monster in the form of John Carroll Lynch. Right, yeah, exactly. We didn't talk about the growth <laughs> serum that he takes. <laughs> uh, it greatly pays off for taking its time and just putting in the headspace of its main character, making you question everything, making you doubt yourself and your own perceptions. It's a point where, like, it could go either way, right up until the moment that, as you say, like the boulder drops. Yeah. Yeah. And you, you talk about it weaponizing uh, social anxiety. And I think it's, I think it's even worse than that. It, it weaponizes your herd instincts to not rock the boat. And I think it, it, it plays your nervous system in a very um, virtuoso sort of way that, you know, makes you nauseous and uncomfortable, which uh, that might be a thing that you're looking for in your entertainment. Yeah. Like there's a point where Will says, like after at least half an hour to 45 minutes of unreleased tension, he just bluntly states, why is everybody being so fucking polite? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like I could totally see myself being the kind of guy who just bottles it in up for the entirety of the dinner party because I'm a very conflict averse person. And then it just gets to me and I snap in a way that puts everyone against me. Yeah. It literally makes it worse. <laughs> It's like the self-fulfilling prophecy. Just all these little notes, like Claire's completely unresolved disappearance. Yeah, so the shot would have been, by the way, a literal shot of her dead in the bushes, which is just totally unnecessary and adds nothing to the, to the tension. I almost like to think that Pruitt let her leave, if only because that they weren't ready yet. It's like, okay, that, that's... I was about to say an acceptable loss, but that would be the opposite of a loss. No, yeah, they, oh, and just whatever sort of creepy, like, hey, are you sure you don't want to stay? It was just the reason that he, that he lingered in the window. Yeah, it's just, it's, it, it was quickly one of my favorite horror movies of the year that I saw it. And I had, I knew almost nothing about it going in. Um, so if you've listened to this whole podcast and you know everything about it, I've done you a disservice. You should have stopped and watched it and then come back. It is really, it is a lovely human horror movie. Um, and I think, I think that's, that's something that I really like and want a lot of times is something sort of bare bones stripped down like this. And that makes it sound like it's low budget. It's gorgeous and lush and beautifully shot and beautifully acted. It's just, it, it is nuanced. Yeah. It's, it's just a single location, but you, you kind of want to go to this dinner party where not for the whole suicidal call desk. Exactly. Yeah. They seem nice other than that one little problem. <laughs> But dropping back to an earlier point, this movie definitely kind of straddles that borderline between thriller and horror for me. And at least in horror spheres, there's been a lot of discussion about horror, the genre, in its relation to the thriller genre. And I think a lot of people in the horror community's problem with that is in the wave of a lot of these critically acclaimed horror movies getting attention and then being labeled in the critical press as Oh, they're, they're not horror. They're thrillers. They're very smart movies. Right. Which, yeah. <sighs> it, it's, um, there's a sort of, there's an artificial, um, it's, it's the same reason, like when I think it's Margaret Atwood who refuses to say that she writes science fiction and wants everyone to say that she writes speculative fiction, which, you know what? That's fine. You're wrong though. And by, <laughs> by sort of enforcing that weird division between the label you are denigrating legitimately good work that other people are doing who don't have a problem with a specific label. And it's just, it feels such like a pointless exercise in, you know, angels on the head of a pin. Well, specifically the Atwood thing, 
like her sci-fi works, so stuff like Orcs and Crake, Handmaiden's Tale, that is very classic sci-fi. Like her perception of sci-fi is that it's Star Wars and like people firing lasers going pew pew. Yeah, but, she she's associating it with subgenres. But her work has far more to do with the classical era of sci-fi, like in the fifties and sixties, than anything from like Star Wars space opera. Yeah, absolutely, and I mean, and there's also just a, a more practical element to it. Is Margaret? There is no speculative fiction section at Borders, so we gotta yeah. we gotta file this shit somewhere. Uh, <laughs> like there is a romance section, there is a, a weird sort of literature section, which yeah, definitely has a sort of you know artificial elevation to it. But there's there is, there's a reason that we have genre sections and they, they aren't about determining the worth of art. It's just a little more practical than that. It's about getting that art into people's hands. Yeah. I guess my question is what defines a thriller to you as opposed to a horror movie? I, I think it's the, I think you can tell by the way I'm stuttering half words is that I don't even <laughs> have a remotely good answer, but the, what I would have said maybe 10 years ago is that it's the presence of supernatural. It's that, you know, Silence of the Lambs is a thriller, and uh, what's the one with Bill Paxton where he kills people with the axe that everybody loves that I don't? Oh, Frailty? And Frailty is a horror movie because there's the potential for uh, supernatural in it. That might be the definition I would have given you 10 years ago, but that's that's immediately just an invitation to come up with 11 examples why that's, uh, a, you know, a horseshit division. I think at those borders, I think this is e- this movie especially is equally a thriller as it is a horror movie. I think classically, I think as a thriller gets away from horror, it gets more towards procedural. But you could still have procedural horror. Um, I just think that's sort of the direction away from from the sort of fear elements of thrillers, which it's in the name. You are thrilled. Yeah. Uh, they're going for very specific emotions here. Like horror, you're supposed to be scared. You're supposed to be anxious and worried. Like thriller is supposed to be like more exciting, and moreover, if we're thinking about like the protagonist story, oh, so like more thriller, like a yeah, like a spy movie is a thriller. Yeah, like I think as if you're going to sum up the story of the protagonist in a thriller of a question, it is how are they going to get out of this one? Whereas in horror, it's not so much a question as a statement of I don't think they're going to get out of this one. Right? Are, are they even? Is there a chance of getting out of this one? There's got to be an element of like hopelessness of something bleak in the atmosphere. Like a big part of horror is that you've definitely discussed before is the concept of othering, of finding an antagonistic person or being in force or making them like others, something non-human, something unstoppable. I don't think we'll get into the full discussion about like the kind of othering nature of horror, but horror is kind of about reinforcing certain societal mores like don't talk to strangers, fear the unknown, uh, fear the other tribe. Listen to your elders. Don't have sex before marriage. Right. Uh, there is something, you said there is something very inherently reactionary about horror. Yeah, I have a whole half-baked thesis about horror being inherently conservative because it's about trying to preserve the status quo of being alive. Um, yeah. whereas, whereas science fiction is more inherently progressive because it's about you know accelerating change and you know the threats are usually things that stop the acceleration. It's extremely reductive, and I don't want to defend it on any sort of scholarly bounds. <laughs> but yeah, I think there is something inherently defensive, conservative, and protectionist and isolationist about horror. And so if we were going to bring the othering discussion into uh, the invitation, I would say that most 
three of the four antagonists, uh, two of the four antagonists are not othered. You understand where David and Eden are coming from and that they're kind of broken, grieving people who have been taken in by the absolute worst people and like turned into weapons and apocalyptic deacons of a kind. Whereas on the other hand, you have Sadie, who's just this wild ball of violence and seduction and Pruitt who's just this psychopath who casually admits to killing his wife and how he shouldn't have to fear death. Yeah, they're, they're more of these sort of external archetypes of cult fiction, whereas the the other couple is the couple that you're meant to empathize with. Yeah, it's whew, the, the imitation. It is on available to stream right now for on Netflix. I imagine it's available to rent on other streaming or rental VOD services as well. Uh, have you seen anything else by Kusama? Um, I have not. I mean, I, no, I've seen Aeon Flux and I've seen Jennifer's Body. I actually have never seen Girl Fight. Um, I saw XX, which is uh, fantastic and everyone should see it. Um, her segment is not my favorite because the box is just so up my horrible alley. Um, but it's it, it, the whole movie is, is really, I have a weakness for anthology films to begin with. Yeah, like, I'm not sure if we'll devote a full episode to the XX at a future date, but just to sum it up quickly, uh, it's in a horror anthology film, four short movies in a kind of creepy stop-motion framing device, uh, all written and directed by female creators. I'd say two of the segments in it are straight-up horror. The first, uh, The Box, which I guess kind of hard to describe, except it touches on very potentially triggering subjects of eating disorders and parental anxiety as well for me was the thing that really dug in a little deep. Yeah. Uh, There's a third one, which is kind of a more straight up monster, creepy thing chasing after you. The second one, which is directed by Annie Clark, AKA St. Vincent, the musical artist is more of a dark comedy. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) And the last one, uh, which is done by Karen Kusama, uh, her only living son, is more of a drama. And she and one of the other writers, I believe, framed it as this is Rosemary's baby fanfic. If Rosemary had escaped with her son after the end of Rosemary's baby and tried to make a good life for them away from his father. I'm using scare quotes here. I think the box is more affecting because that goes to an extremely dark place and they use that short to head off the whole anthology. Uh, but there is something very oddly touching about Kusama's short and XX is on both Netflix and Shudder, I think. So do check that out. So I'm not sure if she's going to be delving back into horror anytime soon, but she left a very solid mark with the invitation and I can't recommend this movie enough. Seen anything else cool recently? Just quickly sum up. And a bit of a true crime kick after finishing um, uh, I'll Be Gone in the Dark. So I really want to watch the, um, the documentary about the pizza bomber case. Uh, oh, Evil yeah. Genius. Evil Genius, yeah. Um, I know that story pretty well, but um, I do love me a good Netflix true crime doc. Yeah, I watched all four of that, uh, all four episodes of that on Netflix. And it is probably the closest thing to a Coen Brothers movie happening in real life. Just this combination of absurdity, human error, and tragedy. Oh, it's, I mean, the, the details I know just seem impossible to coalesce into a cohesive narrative. So I'm excited. So thank you everybody for tuning into this heady discussion about 
cults, social anxiety, and the difference between horror and thriller. And if you're in for more of this academic talk about bloody, scary nonsense, uh, definitely check out the earlier episodes of the show. We've discussed Annihilation. We've discussed uh, The Ritual, The Black Coat's Daughter, It Comes at Night. If you are all about this new wave of horror, then I cannot recommend this own, this very show you're listening to enough. So once again, uh, this is Daniel Link. And I'm Cameron Suey. And you've been listening to Outside of a Dream. So always remember, if it gets too scary, you have the power to press pause. I hope you have a nice evening. 